Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly favored by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but... Say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, Not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding countryside, surrounding country. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. Chapter 7 just comes off of this Sermon on the Mount, and Luke kind of connects these two miracles, these two miraculous events to this sermon. He says after he finished these things, he's on the side of this mountain, he enters into Capernaum. And Capernaum is kind of Jesus' uh, home base. He's, got a, he's there quite a bit. We've seen him in Capernaum already. He's been here before in the narrative of Luke. But here we find him going back into Capernaum. And we're going to get at this issue of authority. Jesus here and Luke is highlighting the authority of Jesus. But just to kind of get us rolling, what, 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 what has authority in our lives and, and how do we know it? Who or what has authority in your life and how do you know it? I was, it was uh, Tuesday maybe, it was one of the days, it was kind of nice out, but the wind had kind of really picked up and we have a kid's book called The Storm That Stopped. It's a great kid's book, um, but it's, it's the story of Jesus asleep on the boat and the wind is blowing and the disciples are crying out, what's, you know, Jesus, don't you care? And the point is, what a silly thing to ask Jesus. Of course he cares. And he gets up and he commands the wind to stop. And what happens? 
the wind stops. And so we read that story quite a bit. And Darla uh, texted me while I was on my break uh, working and said that your son is outside telling the wind to stop. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't working, believe it or not. And, and the only reason why um, he... he it's not that, I'm, I, not that I'm smarter that I don't go around uh, telling them when to stop. It's, I'm more experienced, right? I mean, it, I've tried it. It doesn't work. When you, you can go outside and tell the wind all you want to stop blowing, and it's, it's not, it doesn't listen to you. It, it blows as it wants. We have no authority over winds. Just, just the other day, I was walking, also another story on authority, I was walking by the elementary school on my other job, and a kid had climbed up the basketball hoop and was sitting on the rim, sitting on the backboard for a while. I'm not going to give names, uh, but uh, you all know him, and his parents aren't here, so it's not like, you know, if it, your kid was at the park, it wasn't your kid. But he climbed up and was sitting on top of the backboard and sitting on top of the hoop. And something about, I, I don't know, I was that naughty kid, and something about seeing that now as an adult, it just infuriates me, seeing some little kid doing what I would have done. I don't know if you guys ever experienced that feeling. Uh, but man, I just I, I was just boiling, and I wanted to yell across the, the road. I was a block, half a block away. I wanted to yell at the kid to get down. I mean, I'm like, what are you doing? I I, I kind of wanted to get my phone out and take a picture and give it to the principal, and kind of you know, I, I just kind of had this. I want to rat on this kid so bad. But what I knew is there's a couple options. Either he would listen to me and he would get down, and then as soon as I left, because I have no real authority, he'd probably climb right back up. Or he would um, show me his permit and refuse to get down off of the basketball hoop. He would like, I'm not doing it. Here's what I think of you. I, I, I realized that in the moment, I don't have any authority over this kid. The mailman can't tell me what to do. And technically, he's probably right. So I had no authority in, in that whatsoever. That I, No authority over the wind. I don't have authority over kids on the playground even. And then I was walking around trying to think of, uh, think on my sermon, think of certain things. You ever have this experience in your own head that I don't have authority over the meat between my two ears. I'm, I'm walking around trying to think of, of this topic, trying to, you know, just kind of have my thoughts roll this over in my head. And before I know it, I'm like song three into the Moana soundtrack. Because we listen, anybody else listen to the Moana soundtrack? It's fabulous, by the way. Super good soundtrack. But I, all of a sudden, my brain is off. I don't have authority over my own brain. I can't tell the wind what to do. I can't tell kids what to do. I can't even tell my brain what to do half the time. It goes wherever it wants to. Well, when we come to Jesus, there's no questioning who has authority. There's no question about Jesus and his authority. He tells the wind to stop, and guess what? It stops. He tells disciples, he tells full-grown men, leave everything you're doing, come follow me, and guess what? They do it. He tells sick people to get well, and they get well. He tells dead people, come to life, and guess what? They do. There's no question. Our authority is pathetic and all over the place and very ineffective, but Jesus is someone different. And that's kind of Luke's point all along in the Gospel of Luke. It's highlighting, look at Jesus. This is someone special. Something different is going on with this man. And he builds on that theme all throughout the Gospel of Luke. When it comes to Jesus, there's no mistaking who's in charge or who has the authority. But the question that comes to your mind when you hear this text is, is 
and, and often we think of it the wrong way. We begin to think, and, and people do this with the Gospels all the time. They read a narrative of the Gospel, and they begin to ask questions like, how can I get what's done here done for me? And, and we, we roll this into, we, we, what we do is we put ourselves in the center of the Scripture instead of God, instead of Jesus who is the central figure of Scripture. We put ourselves in there. And so we read this and we say, okay, how can I get what happens here to happen for me? And it's missing the point of Scripture. This is not about, the point is not asking, how do I get these things done for me? The point of Luke's writing is that we'd ask this question, who is this man? That's the point of the text. Who is this man? Who is this man? So in our first account here is with this centurion and his sick servant. And we read through the text, it's pretty straightforward, right, what goes on here. But there's a lot to notice. One of the commentators that I read was mentioning that this centurion uh, really displays a lot of the um, valuable characteristics that Jesus puts forward in his sermon on the plain. And you could look at that. You could look at the humility of this centurion. He doesn't even want Jesus to come into his house. He's very humble before him. But I want to notice the praise that this man gets from Jesus. It's recorded in verse 9. It says it this way. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. He marveled at the centurion. Jesus marveled at the centurion. He marveled at this man and his his faith. He, He marvels at him. Which pushes us into our next question. What could be so amazing that it causes even Jesus to marvel? He says in our text that not even in Israel have I found such faith. Or some translations say, have I found such great faith? Or not not in all of Israel have I found this great faith? Or great faith is this, I have not found in all of Israel. There's something about this faith, such faith, great faith, however you want to interpret that one Greek word there or translate it. There's something particular about this man's faith. What causes him to say this, though, is is the centurion's confidence that Jesus has the authority to command sickness to leave from wherever he is. The centurion's faith, the centurion's confidence is in Jesus' authority. Do you think, let me ask you this question, you don't need to give an audible answer, but think on this. Do you think it was the greatness of the centurion's faith that was shocking to Jesus? Or was it shocking that the centurion's faith was in the greatness of Jesus? Was it that this man had great, large, meaning large, the way we often take the word great is we mean big. This guy had great faith in Jesus. Or does Jesus marvel that this man had faith in the greatness of Jesus? Where do you put the emphasis of the greatness? Is it this man's great faith in Jesus? Or is it this man's faith in a great Jesus? And I want to press on this because it's easy to walk away from a text like this totally wrongly crushed. It sounds something like this. It says, well, I I have faith, but obviously I don't have as great a faith as this man. Because this man, he, he got what he wanted. He had this great faith. 
And it's a pathway when you go down that road into thinking that what was unique about this man was he had this great faith. When you go down that pathway, it is a very dangerous road to go down and can be absolutely destructive to your faith. Absolutely destructive to your faith because the moment that the thing you want to get, you don't get, you begin to think, I don't have the great faith the centurion had. The problem is with my faith. When I read back through the text, the emphasis is not on the man's greatness. Luke over and over again emphasizes this man's humility. He doesn't want Jesus to come. He sends other people with them. And the man is not this guy possessed with some sort of bombastic, big, bold, outrageous, declaring big faith. That's not the image we get. The emphasis is that the man understands authority. He understands Jesus is in charge. And his faith isn't in, I've got this big faith, God can do this. It is, I have this faith that Jesus can do what he wants and that he has this authority. This is not this first time to Capernaum for Jesus. This man knows this. And so the marvel here is not the great faith of the centurion that tied God's hand somehow or forced God's hand because he had the faith and it made Jesus do this. But it was the great faith that was just a simple faith in the greatness of who Jesus is, that he carried the authority that he did and trusting him. So our big idea for this morning is that what matters is not the greatness or the largeness. What matters is not the greatness of our faith, but simple, great, simple faith in the greatness of the God who truly is. What matters is not the greatness of our faith, but simple faith in the greatness of our God for who he truly is. And church is not a place where we should all sit around and we have like faith weigh-ins. Like, you know, if you're going to go to a wrestling match or whatever, you'd show up and you'd weigh in and see, you know, you get a sight in your right class, make sure you don't have too much weight or you're not too light, you're just, just right, or, or some sort of like a food drive competition. Mailmen once a year do a food drive competition and offices compete for the biggest stack of, they have a weigh-in, you put all your canned foods on the scale and Whoever has the largest amount, they're the winners. Church is not a food gathering competition. Who's got the biggest stack of faith? That is, that's often the way people think, but that is not the point. Sometimes when you're, when you're going through trials and you're going through tough things, like my family has kind of been going through the past few months, people will come up and they'll say, they, they mar, they'll say, well, you, you guys have just got such big faith, got such great faith. And I'm Midwestern, so I smile. I don't correct them on the spot. I'm polite. I know they're, I know they're well-meaning. But what I want to say is, you, my faith, let me tell you, sometimes it is, it is grasping It is grasping at the hymn of Jesus. It isn't this big, bombastic, boy, Jesus is going to do whatever. It's pretty puny right now. I'd like to say my faith is pretty puny right now. But despite its puniness... It is in the one who is great beyond, comp- beyond comprehension. And that is what matters. It isn't that, boy, your family's got a lot of faith. It's like, listen, you should see us sometimes. We're hanging on. But let me tell you, what we're hanging on to is a great God. Is a great big God who does exactly what he wants, who has promised to never leave or forsake his children, who has promised to work all things together for their good, who has promised to finish what he has started. And it isn't about, boy, we've got great faith in this God. It is that we've got faith in this great God. 
Jesus teaches along these lines in Luke chapter 17. We won't get there for another 10 or 12 months, so we can look at it quickly here this morning. But Luke chapter 17, thank you all for laughing at that, by the way. You got that. We're working through the book of Luke. We'll get there eventually, Lord willing. But the, the, the Jesus is just talking with his disciples here, and they have this question. They, they want to have their, their faith increase. Verse 5 of chapter 17 in Luke. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed. How big is that faith? That's pretty small. Faith of a mustard seed. Even just the tiniest faith. You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. The point that Jesus is making and that it isn't about the greatness of the disciples' faith. It's simply, do you have faith? In Christ, in God for who He is. The power does not lie in the size of your faith, but the size of the one who the faith is in. On one level, this makes sense. I mean, so all this talk about you know, having faith in the greatness of God, it makes sense. Last night, we were my family's back, Tom and Janet from California, and we were over at Malcolm and Jenny's new place, and we sat down, and, and I watched NASCAR. And i got to be honest with you, this is the first... I haven't watched NASCAR in... Uh, I've been alive 37 years. I haven't watched NASCAR in 37 years. So I sat down, and for the first time in my life, I watched a NASCAR race with my brother who, who loves NASCAR. But I, I've never watched it, so I was shocked. Occasionally, they'd show the speed of the cars, and they're hitting like 194, high 100s all the time on the straightaways. They're, they're flying around this track. And I, I, I couldn't It's just amazing how fast they're going now i don't know nascar but i do know something about i do know something about fast cars i own a 1994 ford mustang gt 5.0 it's fast all right so i know something about fast cars this car is the fastest thing i've ever driven i mean it's it is really something um but let me just be honest i gotta admit no amount of faith in my nice Mustang, going to be a classic in 10 or 15 years, no amount of faith in my Mustang will ever be able to make it keep up with a NASCAR car. I'll, I will concede that point. <laughs> no amount of faith. I mean, I don't care if I have big, huge faith in my 94 Mustang. I really think it's going to keep up. And all you have is little dinky faith in a NASCAR car. Which one's going to prove to be the worthwhile faith? The, 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 uh, the point of the, what matters most is not the size of the faith, me really loving my car. What matters most is not the size of the faith, but the object of that faith. What matters most is not the size of the faith, but the object of that faith. And what is applauded here in this centurion's life is that he sees Christ for who he truly is. One with incredible and ultimate authority, and he trusts in him. He trusts in him. It's in clear contrast to this next story that we have of the widow and her son. There we see another great miracle performed. This, this son has died, this, this grown son. This woman was a widow, which is, I mean, in this culture, is, this is how she provides for herself, is through her children. Her husband has, dead, so, has died, so she isn't provided for by her husband. And now her only son, who would be keep taking care of her, he has died. It has pushed this woman into, I mean, she's just become in, in poverty. It's impoverished her by losing her only son. And Jesus shows up, has compassion upon them, upon him, 
and raises, says to the young man, I say to you, in verse 14, young man, I say to you, arise, and the man gets up. But look at the praise of the people. In a way, they miss the point. They do glorify God. They say fear sees them all. They glorified God. That's good. They say uh, God has visited his people. They're talking about God's mercy. God has done a, a good thing for us. God has visited his people in raising up the sun. And they say a great prophet has arisen among us. They miss the point of who is actually there. They say, you know, a great prophet has arisen among us. Moses tells of a day in Deuteronomy 18, he says the day is coming when God will raise up a prophet like him. A a great prophet, Moses says way back in Deuteronomy, a great prophet is coming. But And and Israel's been without a prophet for 400 years here after the the ceasing of the Old Testament till John the Baptist shows up. They've been without a prophetic voice. But they... So they're shocked. John the Baptist has shown up. Jesus, a great prophet, is here. They're shocked that a great prophet is here, but they aren't shocked that the great prophet is here. There's a few rescues. Um, they're, they're in First and Second Kings, done by Elijah and Elisha. These resurrections or recitations of individuals. In first chapter, First King chapter seventeen is Elijah, Elijah raising. Um, the, uh, the widow of Zarephath's son. And I we, we just quickly uh, will look at uh, this, this raising, what goes on here. This is chapter 17 in 1 Kings, or chapter 17, verse 17, this child dies. Um, verse 19, he says to her, Elijah shows up. He says to her, give me your son. He took him from her arms and carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. Verse twenty. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? He stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child come into, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. That's Elijah raising a, raising a, a young child. Second Kings chapter Four is the story of Elisha raising a child. This is the Shunammite woman's child. Second uh, Kings chapter four. Um, this child has this has gets woozy, dies. Um, let's see the day the day that he came there. Verse eleven. No, let's go on down. Child grows up and he dies. In verse twenty, she went up, lays him down, and goes and gets Elisha. Verse 32, there we go. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in, shut the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Prayed to the Lord. Both Elijah and Elisha had this resuscitation, but what do they do? They pray to God for assistance in raising this child. God hears their prayer and raises them. When Jesus shows up, back in Luke, when Jesus shows up, notice... He doesn't pray to God to, do, to accomplish this. He just does it. He's, he's, a, he's a bigger prophet. He's the great prophet. He doesn't have to go to God to get this done. Well, how could that be? Why? Because he is God. Thank you. He is God. 
He is God. That's how he does it. That's how Jesus, he doesn't pray, he doesn't ask God for help, he acts. And he can do this because he is God. These two events in the life of Jesus are foreshadowing of the kingdom of heaven. These events are a foretaste of the coming universal realities. When Christ returns, his authority will finally banish every sickness from the life of his loved ones. When he returns, death itself will breathe its last breath. All of these evils, these horrible realities that we all suffer as we go through life, they are results of the fall. They are consequences of the rebellion that was launched in Genesis chapter 3, and we have kept up, all of humanity has kept up to this present day. But Jesus walks the earth, and he shows what his kingdom will look like. It's the inbreaking of the coming kingdom of heaven. He shows what it will look like and then seals the future of that kingdom. He seals it to us. He promises it will be accomplished by sealing it with his own blood. This man who has this authority, who tells sick people to get well, who tells dead people to come back to life, this man goes to a cross because his life is not about being served, but about serving and giving his life as a ransom for many. And one day, this great prophet, priest, and king, he will return. And all those who are his, who are trusting in him and in his work, we will dwell with him forever. So the question that follows from these two stories for us this morning is if we are trusting Christ for who he truly is. Are we trusting Christ for who he truly is? Not esteeming him as just some sort of great teacher, one of the great teachers, one of the great prophets, some great leader, someone who has a great moral teaching that we should follow, but seeing him as he claimed to be and trusting him. It's a serious problem in our culture today that that you have many who will affirm with their lips that they trust Jesus. Sure, I trust Jesus. Yes, I love Jesus. Yes, I believe in Jesus. And when you dig a little deeper to what they mean by saying Jesus, you find it's a different Jesus than the one that's revealed to us in the pages of our scripture. The Jesus they trust is a Jesus of their own making. Don't trust that Jesus. Trust the Jesus revealed to us in Scripture. This man had authority. He had the power to accomplish exactly what he wanted by raising people from the dead even. He told sin to take a hike his entire life. Never once sinned. Committed no sin. Was without sin. Earning righteousness for sinners. Then he gives up his life, absorbing the wrath of God on the cross this wrath due to sinners like you and like me, and then God raises him from the dead, and he does all of these things because this man is able to do all these things because this man is God. I want you to hear the hope here as we finish. I don't want you to walk away today crushed because you think, well, I, I don't believe enough. You know, maybe, maybe you are going through tough circumstances. Maybe God has ordained some particularly tough trials in your health, in your family life, in your relationships. Maybe your job is falling apart. Maybe just internally you feel distant from God and you don't even know why. Maybe you've backslidden and are keenly aware of your, of your own sinfulness. Listen, God is not up in heaven weighing your faith out. Ah, oh, this person's got two pounds of faith. If only they had five, I might listen to them. God is not doing that. God does not respond to the greatness of our faith as we see it, but to faith in him and his son for who 
he truly is and what they have done. Small faith and their greatness far outweighs any great faith in something that they aren't. Small faith in their greatness and who they are and what they've accomplished in the sinning of His Son, living the life we should have lived, dying the death that we deserve so that we can be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to Him. Small faith in that great big God is way more valuable than great big faith in a God that doesn't really even exist. What I'm calling for us today, what I'm calling for you today is to is not to pretend like you're not crushed, not to pretend like life isn't difficult, not to pretend like things don't weigh on you from time to time, or that there aren't plenty of things that still need to be changed, but to take even that small amount of faith that you have and turn it to the one who is truly great and truly worthy of all of our hope and all of our trust. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see you for who you are. This is a work only your Holy Spirit can do. And so, God, I just come before you asking that you would give us eyes to see, enlighten the lights, or give, enlighten the eyes of our heart that we might see you. Give us a spirit of wisdom, revelation, and the knowledge of you, God, that we would know you, and in seeing you would trust you, would treasure you, not with bombastic faith, but with simple, humble, um, needful faith. God, you are great. We want to trust ourselves to you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.